You're listening to You Don't Know Nick, the podcast, a podcast that explores the generational differences from Zoomers to Boomers as it relates to what's going on today. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Jessica Lynn Verde. And I'm Mike Richards. And we're the hosts of Mission Log, The Orville. We look at every episode to break it down from messages, morals, and meanings. We'll be with you every step of the way from episode one to season three when it premieres on Hulu on June 2nd. You can find our show everywhere you listen to podcasts or you can go to podcast.roddenberry.com. We'll see you in the stars. Not if I see you first. Thank you. Yeah, you brushed your hair for me and everything. I did. <laughs> I didn't do that. That's okay. You no. still look. I I would have it no other way. I, that's how comfortable I am. You know what? We're just gonna jump in. All right. You tell me what to do. No, there's nothing. <laughs> there's there's literally nothing to do. So Great. this, uh, you know, who Nick Masu is? I do. Do you know that him and I do this podcast together? I know that you do a podcast together. This is this podcast, and okay. because he has a second child that was recently born. He Congratulations can't. to me. Exactly. I still don't even know the, the name of the baby. I don't think they knew. I, I don't know if they've known. I don't know if that baby is named yet. But it's, that baby's 18 months old. It's yeah, those very <laughs> the, well, I guess Cardi B just did that too. They renamed their son after like seven months. But you know, this is like a it's like a contemporary current events, but let like also like let's talk about generations and like the yeah. differences between generations. And I Ooh, had it is fun because it's like a, I'm, I don't know if you see like the stupid news articles that are like, Gen Z thinks this about millennials. Millennials hate boomers and boomers, Gen, Gen X doesn't care. You yeah. know, it's, it, it's like pitting, it's starting these wars that don't really matter. So uh, it's just more fun to kind of pick it apart and then see if Nick Masu knows what like LMAO is or, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he's just yeah. a little off of the uh, pop culture references that 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 makes it interesting for us cool yeah so you're mike delonzo i am what what what's what's the what's what is it about you that i like so much and you know love? i'm warm <laughs> both physically and um you know emotionally you run hot i give great hugs oh, you do uh you know i'm fun on stage but i'm fun off stage you know one of my fondest, earliest memories of you is you warmly welcoming me on the sidewalk to, uh, right before we went in to do a show together. So like you understood, like you made me feel like ready to go on stage with you just by the way you greeted me and talked to me before we went. I don't know if you remember yeah, this. Like I don't. We were going to the, we were doing the Acme stage in North Hollywood for whatever reason. We, like we never did it oh, again. Man. Yeah, I I remember that we did that, but I'm not sure why. It was a, it was a thing that Paul put together with them because I think he was trying to get in their favor so that we would be able to do shows there. That's right. Oh, and it, it was a theater sports, wasn't it? Or yeah, it was before we did stuff at the uh, annex, right? It was before What's I think the we annex, the spot at the theater sports uh, on Vermont. Oh, I would n- I've never heard of it be re- referred to as the annex. We just called it the studio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But annex um, is actually perfect. Or shithole is another yeah, one too. Yeah. 
The tiny closet. The, the hot tiny, closet. The inaccessible <laughs> <laughs> closet. The, you know what's really funny about that? I think about this all the time is that, um, you know, we have, I mean, the, the talent that was in there is remarkable, right? And we would do shows for four people. You know, I mean, that like, a, that like speaks to how how much comedy there is to see in Los Angeles on any given Friday or Saturday night that like, you know, Mike Rock would be in there or, uh, you know, like anybody. Um, what's his name? Um, from whose line? Mike. Um, I was Mike McShane. Mike McShane. Yeah. Would do those shows with us and nobody would be there. Like Mike, Mike McShane's like an improv titan. You He's know? on were- tour you know internationally right now because he's yeah. a big fucking deal like yeah and and nobody would be like didn't we have like do you remember the disney kids that came in were you there for that they were blowing sort of, my you're blowing my mind right now there was some sort of like disney channel show that um that like i don't know for whatever reason like half the cast came one night you know um was it like and, it was like it was like, it was like sweet life. It was like sweet life of Zach and Cody, but it wasn't that. It was you know what I mean. It sure, was something sure, like that. Sure. And it was like these tweens that came in to see the show, and for some reason, like they must have known somebody. They had to know? know Paul Hungerford. Probably they had to because so Paul is like the great tie that binds. And you've just reminded me that I should probably ask him to do this podcast. Oh, I don't know how. Say that again. He'd be great at it. Well, because he's uh, not only of his generation, but of earlier generations. He, re- he really is. I just don't know how yeah. he feels about me emotionally. And if I were to tell him that right now, I guess, well, what the fuck are you talking about? You know what I he mean? He loved you. I That's know. how I knew. So the probably the reason that I greeted you warmly, I was going to say this like way at the beginning, was that like when you came, Paul, before I even met you, he was like, oh, she's good. Because he was teaching you. I think I taught you before we played together. We might. I think you like. I, I, I think, think I subbed for yeah, um, at the at, at the studio in in the valley. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I kind of knew you a little bit, and I was like, "Oh, I taught her," and he's like, "Yeah, she's good." Oh. Um, and so, um, so like I I knew I wanted to be friends with you, and you were funny. I just you liked know? you guys so. I, like I followed. I the, uh, Paul talked about how like. It makes sense that when we're on stage, light is pointed at us because when you're a performer, your light is what draws people in. So when you have like a spotlight sh- shown on you, it just it, it, like it exacerbates that experience that people have. And yeah. whenever I saw, I, you know, the first time I met him was him teaching that $25 commercial class at Keep It Real. And I was like, this guy, I think every, I think the world about him, whatever he wants me to do, I will go do that. And I mean, I've felt that way for like 35 years now. Like he's literally one of my favorite people on earth. And know? yeah, I just was just talking about him uh, apropos of nothing, but in a world where things change so rapidly and it's not easy to be, I'm not saying it's hard to be a white male, you know, middle-aged male, but where like you can always have missteps, especially in a leadership role. He constantly strives towards learning. He doesn't like take a knee. He doesn't pretend to learn. No, he learns in public. I've always loved that about Paul. He he comes out and is just like, I feel like this whole podcast is going to be about Paul. It now. may just um, be, but actually I'm going to blow your mind before we get, it will be about Paul and then it will be about something else that I am afraid will change our relationship. But carry uh, on. In, in, okay. the, in the worst way and best way, but don't worry. Okay, fair enough. Worry um, not. So, um, yeah, he's just, he, he's wears his heart, he wears his heart on his sleeve. And he is not afraid to say, I don't know about this. 
you know, and to kind of fail in public. Like he exemplifies improv in its finest form, right? Which is to be afraid to fail in public. He doesn't care. He cares what people think about him, but he doesn't care so much that he refuses to change himself. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So he, um, he's got like a true north. Although he does have a fake laugh. There's a there's a real Paul oh, laugh and a fake oh, Paul no. laugh. Oh no, I'm gonna play this for him. We've I... been we've been making fun of him for the fake laugh for twenty five years now. Oh, God. Is whenever Paul laughs like this, ha <laughs> ha that is fake. That's a fake that laugh. That laugh is fake. What's yeah. the real one then? Can oh he you... just can't see like he just like I, I can't even do it. It's like comes from his guts. My favorite I mean? is when you get the lens of someone's real laugh and it's like super nerdy and you can see why or like like really embarrassing and you could see why they needed a fake laugh like oh, i've yeah. seen people do ugly laughs like because <laughs> they are actually beyond like like they're beyond the facade and then i'm like i get why you have a fake laugh totally yeah yeah oh. or there's also the laugh that like you have to install it so that if you because if you laughed as hard as you were about to laugh you'd either throw up or or cry you know what i mean like <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? Like you, the, the laugh that's so hard that you have to go like before <laughs> to prep yourself for how hard you're about to laugh. You know what I mean? I, you know, I think you do know what that is more genuinely than I even do. Because I, I, you know, like those stupid fucking quotes are like, live, laugh every day. I can't help it. Like that's just something that you naturally do is something that I naturally do. You yeah. know, you know from that well much because you make other people laugh. You laugh so genuinely. Um, did you ever go to that stupid tequila bar by the studio? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like you may have been there for this, but I it definitely was like Nick Clark and like maybe you and somebody else. And I had the fucking worst laugh at something I think Nick Clark had said. And oh, I, that wouldn't surprise me. It, oh, it's really funny. Well, so we had him on the podcast to talk about NFTs because he's working in that world a little bit, but I, cause also just uh, to fill in the background, Nick is interested in crypto. So we talk about NFTs. Nick and stuff. is interested in crypto. Yes. Yeah, okay. uh, and so I, we've talked about it more so than I might have it, it because of this podcast, but it is like generate, it's a generational experience. And, and I, you know, I make Nick feel like he's actually participating in the podcast by contributing that way. But we had Nick Clark on, uh, on to talk about it. And he's, he was like, he unlocked some major improv obstacles for me just by like chit-chatting at the bar yeah. or whatever. But he must have said something. I laughed so hard, like completely unabashedly, so loud. And there was these three losers in the be- like the booth just to the right of us. And one guy goes, oh, if I heard that, I'd kick her out of bed. <laughs> and I, my what? feelings got hurt so much. Oh my God. First of all, like, like how could your feelings, like, first of all, that guy was already envisioning having you in bed. That's so true. Which is just like, you know, that's presumptive, but also like, fuck you. You know what I mean? And so this like, is how I handled it. I looked at him. I said, well, I probably wouldn't be there. I heard you. I, I it wasn't very nice. <laughs> I just, I didn't want him to get away with it because I heard him, but I didn't have like a good comeback. And then like the next half an hour was spent between me vacillating, trying to ignore it and then going, guys, uh, you know, it was, it was hard. It was hard to deal with. It happens. I don't think I was there, but uh, it wouldn't surprise me. Like one of the things that I like most about you is that you're a, have always been, and I, and I mean this in the nicest possible way, a complete fucking nerd. <laughs> I love 
like about everything, right? Yeah. Like whatever you're into, you're into, you mm -hmm, know? Mm -hmm. And so like that also makes it easy to play with you because you are, because you're into whatever you're into and you're not into whatever you're not into. And like that kind of uh, appears on stage too. You know what I mean? Like it's sure. um, so I'll so take, good, I'll take good objective. For, for, uh, for liking what you like and disliking what, and you're also, you also are a big squishy. You're a big squishy heart. My you mother I mean? would say I was, I was, I'm an exposed nerve and yeah. But at the same time, I'd rather be that. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it does, it does make me the, Im the improviser that I am. Yeah. Um, and that just it also makes it hard, right? Like, I mean, without getting too deep into our friendship, like there have been times where I know that like there have been months and months and months of our friendship that were spent talking about how difficult things were for you. So like, yeah, you know, I talk um, pretty candidly without naming names for that because I'd like to also, in, you know, Paul has taught me so much, including that, like I would, if I have this platform, I'd rather share the struggles that I had that I've been able to overcome thanks to people like yourself. Um, so that's, it's a little bit easier for somebody else. One of the things I learned from that experience is everyone wants to be there for you, but I still have to go through the journey. No one's going to be able to answer those questions yeah. for me. Um, and you're totally right. That was when my emotional side was volatile as opposed to a strength. And so learning how to mature into it being a, like a tool that I can wield and use it at as I need it to, like, in order to serve me, as opposed to be, like, ruled by it. So I don't yeah. know. I, I kind of liked talking about that stuff, honestly. I mean, I I like talking. I always like talking about that stuff because I feel like. I like being intimate with my friends. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't, I don't like I, you, you have different levels of friends and so, and it's weird because sometimes you'll be close to people that you don't get intimate with. Right. Sure. And then sometimes you'll be intimate with people that you're not particularly close to. Right. Um, there was, uh, hmm. there was somebody in our midst, um, that I was that I didn't see very often. And every time I saw her, it felt like, oh my God, super intimate. And then I think I, I know who you're her, talking about. You know? I think I know exactly who you're talking about. And it, and and it's one of those situations where it's like, oh, we were meant to have this kind of friendship, you know. And uh, for me and you, I feel like it's I it's it, it, um, without being too high hat about it i guess i feel like it was like a mentorship kind of from the beginning like almost at the beginning you know yeah, what I mean? like, yeah totally um so there was like a i don't know i just wanted to take care of you you were cool i like i thought i enjoyed playing with you and and at the same time i didn't feel like you were patronizing me do you know what i mean like there was definitely definitely different levels of especially at impro i'm your teacher i'm not your equal and not in a grotesque, you know, power abusive way. Yeah. Just some people are, we're going to relate to you as your teacher and only your teacher. And some of those teachers related to other students as like buddies, you know, it's just like who you Yeah. And some of them were good at that. And some of them were bad at that. Something that I've learned over the course of my years in comedy in general, but mostly in improv is, and, and this is illustrated everywhere is that, um, just because you happen to be a great improviser or a great teacher doesn't mean you're a, uh, empathetic or uh, emotionally uh, stable human being, you know, as a matter of fact, sometimes that's what led you to improv and what led you to like, you force 
these kind of relationships with people because wow. you, you know what I mean? Because you're not good at them organically. You know what I mean? Um, wow. but, but then some people in that environment are excellent. Like I'm thinking of, again, I don't want to name a lot of names. Uh, I think when it, if it makes the, if it's not disparaging, but if it's like, maybe they don't want that emotional thing. Then, no, but I'll tell you, uh, as but a you could definitely, example, we talk about a bunch of people with love. So, positively and with complete love and somebody who I feel like I didn't spend enough time with, but whenever we spent time with, it was great. It was Brian Jones, oh. right? Like Brian's such a good guy, but uh, he's also like intuitive and he's open and emotional and a really good teacher for that. You know what I mean? Because he doesn't presume that he's better than you. He's just, he's just showing you things that he knows, you know? He's got like a, a ver, a verve. What is that? A verve for life? No, a viv. A, 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 a joie de vivre. A joie de vivre. Well, yeah. at this, the only thing that wasn't fair to everyone that taught me at Impro at that time, which again is now six years ago, I guess. Um, yeah, six years ago. Six, yeah, it's uh, been six five more. Ago. Yeah, it's been at least six. Because when did David, you move? Well, David's five and a half, so wow. I would have stopped. So yeah, I moved almost five years ago four and a half years ago wow oh there's so much to talk about i'm so excited um because you also integrated me into your ttrbg world which then like opened up a whole new group of people that i get i know because of that um and i I still have something to blow your mind about but um that i think the old my insecurity was so high and i didn't even know it that i didn't give a lot of people the benefit of the doubt to genuinely care about me or assess me at that school. Um, I felt very like my insecurity tends to put extra thoughts. I tend to try to infer what other people think about me, which is usually a negative thought. Right. And so when I was getting a note and let's say not enough Oreo, right? Like a compliment feedback compliment. I would just walk away going, well, everyone thinks this about me. I'm da, 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 not good enough. There wasn't a Ripley show that I walked away from feeling like I did a good job in for like the first two years of Ripley. Which That's is- crazy because you guys seemed so close right from the very beginning. You no know one, what I mean? It I- was no one's fault. and and But like this is what kind of blows my mind is despite that, those women loved me. Despite my insecurities or, you know – shortcomings or whatever I was cast in improvised generation despite like these hang-ups that I had um people despite my very emotional tumultuous you know bout people went Jessica's worth it we're just gonna help her and I know it's like I didn't murder people I understand that but I think I was difficult to be around in some ways emotionally and that was all my doing but I had I, I couldn't be more grateful to have been around the people that it was around because of how much they taught me about unconditional love and forgiveness and like grace, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like that place at that time was a really good example of all that kind of stuff. You know, like you hear all this stuff about how, how LA, but also how the comedy scene in LA in particular is so cold and and hard. And I didn't find that at all. Like I, I, Everybody was really nice. You know, I liked just about everybody. We litigated all of our issues in a kind of 
um, at least comedically in a, in a sort of egalitarian way, you know, where everybody had a, a, a thought and stuff like that. Like, here's a perfect example. And this is a, this is a funny story that goes back. We were doing theater sports. I don't know if you were in the show or not, but probably um, not, but move, carry on. So we were doing theater sports and they were, it was a, a game that required people to take playwriting styles. And for some reason, somebody in the audience took Neil LeBute, right? You mean one who, of the actors or the person who was hosting took Who's hosting took Neil LeBute took Neil as LeBute. a suggestion, right? Right. And I don't, you know. You don't you know take anything, Neil LeBute. Right. But also, like, there's only one defining characteristic of Neil LeBute plays, and it's that it's misogynist, right? Right. Oh, so I never you, thought of that. That's it. That's literally the only defining characteristic of everything that he does is every little thing is completely misogynist. Right? I think that was really, oh God. I, now I'm wondering why everyone always wants to perform that fucking play, The Shaper Thing. Because it's hard. It's really, it's a great play. It's, right. but it's hard. It's hard because it's in there. You right, know what I mean? Right, right. Um, and it's, and, and that's what makes it difficult is that you kind of like are doing this. I mean, it's whatever, it's toxic to do it, but it's also really difficult as an actor, you know? So anyway, fair. it was me and I think Ted Cannon. And, <laughs> who we love, who we love. Ted yeah, Cannon. Ted's great. I love Ted. Um, and, and I literally, the first like three sentences out of my mouth were awful, horrible, misogynist things. And it got cut. And afterwards, somebody who was very young at the time was like nuclear mad at me for doing that. And I was like, I didn't do it as me. I did it as the character in this suggestion that we took. There's literally no other thing. It's not dissimilar. Do. It's not dissimilar from someone taking David Mamet and someone going, Hey, fuck you, you motherfucker. I'm going to fucking kill you or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Just using five exactly. words. It's the same exact. And, and you'd get cut. Right, and and you have to depend on the director to cut that scene as quickly as possible, right? Like you know, that's the joke. You get one or quick to joke not in your call eye. it. You know what I mean? Correct. Um, but if you're on stage and that gets called, you're fucked. You have to do it. So you know, so I did it, and this person argued, and I don't think she liked me very much for some time, and and I kept going back to her and being like, hey, like this wasn't me. This was the thing, you know, like. I'm not a, I'm not a misogynist as a human being. It just was the, this is what sometimes you get put in that position on stage. You have to do uncomfortable things. Now at, at, at my age now, I would just say no. I was just going to say, and that's and, and I, maturity. I came up in a, yeah. And I, but I also came up in an environment where you don't say no to what right. happens on stage. You know what I mean? Like, right. and that, when you were talking about earlier with Paul and, and missteps and and the missteps of being old and white and a guy. There's also misstep of culture of having lived through so much culture that like you by benefit, if we're talking generationally of, of your youth had the ability to just be like, fuck that. I'm not going to do that. Right. And the audience will applaud you. But in my mind, it's deeply ingrained. Like you do what you're told on stage. You don't have the agency to say, I'm not going to do this. Mike, let, let's explain. Sorry, carry on, carry on. It's up to the the people who are around you to not put you in that position. Correct. At that point, especially. So I I want to extrapolate that even further for the first five to six, well, probably my entire 
waitressing career. I didn't know I didn't know I had the agency to reject the advances of men because I was in the position of service. And I and the customer's always right. And I didn't like Oh, uh, yeah. So like uncomfortable conversations would happen because I didn't know how to divert or say that's not appropriate and I was young and also we're not as women trained to speak back to men there's other settings when if you speak back to men it could invoke violence so you're and this is a really extreme version of what you're talking about but you were literally trained ah something weird might happen but let's fucking go for it it's improv hey whatever right and you're not the first person to make that Leo, Neil Labute joke. You didn't invent that one thing that just happened. You know, what right? I mean? And look, I'm not. I mean, I. It's, I didn't you're tell not that excusing story. it. You're not excusing right. And it. I didn't tell that story for absolution. I told it to to explain why after that. So the end of that is that person and I are still friends. Oh wow! You know, I believe. And, I believe it. And and she and I, you know, I mean, we're not super close, but we talk every now and again, and it's very pleasant and. Um, she actually works where I used to work. I was going to say, this of... person is me. No, uh, yes, just, yes, just... it is. And no, I, now, I know, now I know who you're talking about. That's funny. Um, and so, and, and it's, it's just that we, we learned together and it didn't make it awful. And in, in lots of places, it might've made it awful, but you just said something that I think about often that's hard to articulate. And I think I might have a way to do it right now, which yeah. is people, male people, <laughs> especially white male people of a certain age feel like it's hard, feel like their life is hard enough. Mm. So when other people tell them how hard their life is, it's, they can't, it's overload. Like they can't handle it. When I hear stories about, when I think about like the fact that women have to get off of an elevator second because they don't want to feel like they're being followed by somebody in an elevator. And that's such a deeply ingrained habit that it's, I don't even know. I realized I did it right, right? until this moment. Like I know and, I, and what the, I do in other scenarios and the tiny little tweaks in your life and the politics that you have to navigate and being like, you were just talking about being a waitress and having to separate service in that respect versus service that you might give in a sexual respect is I, it's mind blowing how, much there must be going on in the like in a background loop in your mind all the time and like no wonder it is so like soul crushingly hard to be a woman at this time in this world even like as they're shining that spotlight on it and you have the ability to say like this is what's happening mm -hmm, just like mm -hmm. it's like it's like being able to read the source code and you're like oh my god this is Totally. You know what I mean? The Matrix. You see the Matrix. And we talked about yeah. that with improv. Like Paul Hungerford would say, you just don't see the Matrix yet. Yes. And when you see the Matrix, it will get even harder until. Until it's to, not. Until anymore. it's not. Correct. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. to jump back to the uh, the female that I think you're talking, that I think I know who you're talking about, um, also was of an age where she was exploring what speaking up about her feelings yes. was. And now I would say to her, good for you for telling me that you didn't like this. And that you is, a, I mean? that was a hard thing to do even five years ago I'm and sure at her is. age, yes. it, but like she might have approached it differently. Like, so, but, but I think that's still strangely a compliment to you and the school that she felt comfortable to go, I didn't like that. And 
Yes, she could choose to hate you for it or be upset or not hear you. But as opposed to having to swallow it and go, well, at least I was lucky to be here as the only female in this group or whatever. I I just knowing that person and knowing my own journey through learning how to speak up for myself. Um, you do have like this intersection of person that's learning, person that's learning. Who can I learn that against? It's, you know, it's, it's this ebb and flow with relationships, right? Like if I'm at a certain level of insecurity, I'm going to attract someone that's at a certain level of insecurity. You're learning whether you could have said that with Neil LeBute and they're learning whether they could have, they could confront you about that and how. Yeah. And the hard part of learning in general, or the hard part of living, I think, or a hard part of living, because they're all hard. Multiple things. Is like finding somebody who doesn't attract the same kind of insecurity that you do because uh, there's comfort in having the same insecurity and, and people kind of, it's like a, a, a road that you're on and occasionally you divert yourself off of the road because it's easier to drive the side road. And you're just like, Oh my God, this person is also insecure about being in public. So we're just going to hole up in the house and Netflix and chill for the rest of our lives. And we're never going to confront that because we both feel that way about this thing. And like, that doesn't help you either of you, but it's not a judgment because you might just be there. Like that's might be where you live in that little side area. You might've chosen not to drive anymore. You know what I mean? Like you're just done. I have friendships that have changed because they decided, Oh, you know what? I'm just going to get married instead of pursue and then had it had like pursue the acting career and that changed their perception of me because I wasn't going that same direction. Yeah. Um, God, that's a perfect metaphor. Just so that you know what's been going on in my life. I took the detour again with the same emotional bump a, a few months ago and it was awful as you can imagine it would be. And then yeah. I went, Oh, all right. But it was necessary to get over a mental hang up that I hadn't gotten over, that I didn't know I hadn't gotten over yet. So in a weird way, it was like therapeutic to go take that side Netflix right. route, <laughs> but it was also awful. Um, I, I'm so fucking excited. Uh, you've, you were like number three on my list when like Nick was going to, like said he had a baby. I was like, okay, well, what are we going to do? And like Mike Delonzo is going to be someone we're going to talk to. Right. So I, I already within, we talked about like 500 things right now. And I'm so grateful for that. Hello, listeners. It's your new friend, Philip Matas, here to advertise in your ears. If you're looking for a good read, I would highly recommend a book that I wrote. It's called The Murderous Haircut of the Mayor of Bel Air, and it's a funny and exciting mystery, which is the first in my Psychic Barber Mysteries series. It is the story of Danica Lumen, a struggling hairstylist who also has secret psychic abilities. Normally, she touches the heads of her customers to see just what type of styles they want, but things go sideways in her life when she touches the head of a new customer and sees a dead body. The murderous haircut of the mayor of Bel Air has collected tons of five- and four-star reviews, and it would like to collect one from you as well. So just search for Murderous Haircut Philip to find my homepage and learn where best to buy your copy of your next favorite book, the murderous haircut of the mayor of Bel Air. And now, back to the show.
Okay, here's what I here's here's my confession. Hey, whatever it is, it's okay. I'm still gonna love you regardless of whatever it is you tell me next. I don't know if this is true. Okay. Maybe, maybe not. I don't get what the fuss is about Prince. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I had my friend Philip Matazan, and he had a Ramones podcast, and he was talking about like when Prince, you know, got rid of the symbol and came back to it and was like, you know, I'm just going to play the hits. And him and his wife, I believe, went to go see Prince play. And they're like, oh, he played this and this. And he didn't, he only played, like, he didn't play two hits. And I'm like, Philip, I missed the Prince train. Yeah. I mean, and, that's it. Yeah. Like, I you, missed the you Prince just train. Missed it. So, yes. um, so are you looking to get on the Prince train or are you just looking to understand the Prince train? I think of if any, I don't know. So here's, here's, here's why, here's why, here's what I think is comparable. I know who Prince is. I know the songs. I don't get chills when Purple Rain comes on or just, but, but like I can objectively agree that like there's some good songs. I think there's some things I don't even know he did. I know that he's a sexual icon, etc. Like, but like I, and I know who Michael Jackson was, but I didn't understand the impact Michael Jackson had on music and people until after he died, because it right. was, then the music was being played all day. I was like, what the fuck is happening? My m grandmother wrote for Motown and wrote for Jackson 5 and Michael Jackson. So it's not like I didn't know who these people were, but the impact and like the era in which he was most influential and iconic, I think I was too young. So I think that's true for Prince. I don't know if I want to get on the bandwagon. I just don't know what I'm missing. So I want you to be oh. here and talk about Prince because this might also be a generational thing too. I mean, it, it definitely is. Like, first of all, you know, for me, um, I I came to I came to Prince a little bit late because, uh, or like by accident. Mm. So um, I was not. Uh, a big, I didn't, not that I wasn't a big fan. I just didn't, I wasn't aware of Prince necessarily through like controversy and dirty mind in 1999. Like I was a little bit too young. I see. When that stuff happened. So I was like maybe 11 or 12 when 1999 came out. Mm -hmm. um, but Purple Rain came out and it was like everything all of a sudden. It was just everywhere. And um, I can specifically remember, I didn't see it in the theater, but uh, my friend Adam, uh, was dating a girl in middle school uh, who I was also friends with. And she had Purple Rain at her house somehow, like on tape or something. And we were going to go over there ostensibly to watch Purple Rain. And I was definitely the third wheel in this situation as I was. Your first threesome? Uh, no, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was my eighth. I was, no, I'm just um, <laughs> um, No, it was so much sadder than that. I, I would, I had a habit um, when I was very young of finding somebody that I was that I really liked and was really interesting interested in and then setting them up with my best friend yes. because I didn't feel uh valuable enough to be that person or like I didn't feel like I could put myself out there because I would be so wrecked by not being close to them in some way or another so I did this for years where I would just like set people up with people that I really really wanted to be with um and so this was one of those situations i know that so there's to this day there's a guy who sabotaged my relationship with his best friend because he liked me 
and introduced me to him and then told their entire friend group that I was the worst because he was upset that you're not the bad. You weren't the bad. You're the good version of this. He was the bad version of this. He was. Yeah, no, I have been the bad version of that. We all have bad. You do dumb things in pursuit of, you know, love. I just know know this penchant. So and my heart bleeds for you, Mike. It bleeds. I mean, I, you know, I wish I could, I wish with all of my heart that like, you know, if you could just go back and whisper something into your ear when uh-huh. you were a kid, like one sentence, <laughs> it, it would have, well, actually, if I had two sentences, <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> one would be, you're going to find somebody, right? Because that governed my whole life up to and through my first marriage was that like, I was afraid that I was never going to find the right person or I wasn't going to, nobody would like me, you know? Um, and the other thing is don't get the credit card. Um, that's, you know what I mean? Like just should be, it should be a class and it yeah. should be like a teacher. Like, you know what? It should be, it should be homeroom. And the first thing they say is you don't need a credit card. Don't get a credit card. Don't get a yeah. credit card. And then you go on with the rest of your day. You're totally right. You're totally right. Yeah. No, it's two things. And then <laughs> and I would have been fine. Right. <laughs> totally fine. Um, fuck this fucking system, man. Exactly. Um, so Anyway, uh, we're at her house, and obviously the movie starts, and they immediately start making out because that's what happens. Shut the front I door. I can't. Sad. I was really sad, but then Purple Rain was on, and I, you know, as big a Prince fan as I am, I'm a bigger Bowie fan. Bowie has been my like right. guiding principle for my entire life, and I saw Prince, and I was like, oh my god, it's Black David Bowie. Oh god. Like, and <laughs> yeah, and that, totally. Like, immediately was like, oh, that resonates with me. This guy can do everything. He can be everything this movie is not great but it's a great like ambitious thing for this 20 some year old person to be like you know what i'm gonna be in a movie starring myself about myself about the legend of myself and do do these songs that are just fucking blow your mind incredibly good like purple rain is is such a good song i guess i didn't realize it was also a movie this is what i'm trying to tell you like so watch the movie I guess it's, that I it's should bad, do bad, but also great. You know <laughs> is it like mean? is it like Magical Mystery Tour bad or no? Is... It's better than Magical Mystery Tour. At least there's a plot that you can follow. Got it. It's like um, Hard Day's Night bad. You know what though? Hard Day's Night is very good. It is. It is, and it's you know you. It, it's weird though. It's weird in its own way. Yeah, it's definitely weird. Um, but yeah, I thought like the audacity of this person, and he was like. I want to say he was like 25 years old when he made this movie and like making a movie about yourself, playing yourself about the legend of how you became yourself. Wow. It's like super audacious for somebody at 25, you know? And I just like, I liked him from that point forward. And then he does different things. Like I, so I grew up near Philadelphia, um, like 45 minutes away from Philly in the seventies. Yeah. And so yeah. like, it's like Philly soul music is a big deal to me, like a bi- really, really big deal. Wow. Well, so like who who encompasses soul? Philly so like soul? So for for me, soul is like um, the stylistics and the chai lights and the barquets and like people like that, right? Like, I'm gonna need or, you like, to make me a Spotify playlist. Oh, I'll be happy to. Please. Uh, um, and so and and so that stuff like that that Prince could do that. And also play guitar like Jimi Hendrix and also sing like Aretha Franklin and also played the drums on all of his tracks and also wrote so much music that there's thousands of albums in a, in a 
basement somewhere that have never been released because he's crazy. That also part of it is that he's crazy is what attracts me. Didn't to him, he have you know? a, his whole house set up to record? So like if, even yeah. if he's in the so bathroom. Whenever he's ready, to, it's called Paisley Park. Um, wow. It's wherever, wherever. And that like all of a sudden he decided like, I want to make a psychedelic album. So he made Around the World in a Day. And like, you know, like whatever you don't like about Prince changes on the next album. You know what I mean? Wow. And there's there's so much music. There's just so much of it. And it's all really good. And um, but and and like he just understands music in a way that like I feel like Mozart understood music, which kind of drove him crazy. Like I don't I'm not sure that Prince could tell you why he knows what he knows. I mean, obviously not now. But uh Well, you let's know. let's phone a friend. Let's see. Prince? Well, yeah. <laughs> this is your life. <laughs> um so like, but that, you know that they're doing DNA studies now, which you you know I'm a huge Dune fan, and yeah. the Bene Gesserit, you know, can tap into all their female ancestry and can pass on that memory, and they're learning that DNA they think can carry on memory from like uh you know like capabilities. Like my grandmother was good at writing, I can get some of that intrinsically from her. So, like, there is something to be said for, like, if there's lineage of, like, someone that was a maestro in your life or in your right. past, you could, you have a predilection toward, because it's Mozart who wrote his first concerto before he, he was five. Yeah. yeah. So, you can't account for that. No, you can't. Right? You can't. Like, and so you're, so what I'm understanding is, and it's kind of blowing my mind, Prince can't account for it. And it's, it's just, you know, so, like probably not the same situation, but like Dan Aykroyd just learned that he has Asperger's or not just learned, but like in the last five years learns that he has Asperger's. I mean, Asperger's. we could have told him that years ago. Come on. <laughs> I would never have guessed that. I, I actually w kind of would have guessed that. Really? A bit. I mean, I wouldn't have guessed it straight out, but it doesn't surprise me. It doesn't it, surprise it, me for his penchant towards just creating and comedy, right? Like, yes, but he, also is, that. but he also is, um, Ackroyd is a, is a genius, but he's also like a 80% garbage, 20% diamonds kind of person. Mm, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. he just like, blah, 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 you know, um, <laughs> sure. and, the, and so most of it is just like, what are you even talking about? Right? Like there's for every one great Dan Ackroyd joke or, you know, there's only a couple like whole movies that are perfect. Ghostbusters being one of them. Which there's, one? Ghostbusters. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But there's yeah. so many of them that are not. I guess you know I only I mean? know the diamonds then. Like, yeah, go watch Nothing But Trouble sometime. I don't or, think I need to. Based or on Neighbors. Or, you know what I mean? Like, there's a lot of really bad Dan Aykroyd stuff in the world. But it's that's okay because the world needs Dan Aykroyd. And also, right. you know. We're better for him. Yeah, for sure. You know. That's fascinating. And so the other thing you hit on, which also does open up the Prince wine bottle for me is being akin to David Bowie. When David Bowie died, we were still doing like, we were heavy in the theater, like improv stuff. Yeah. I think people texted you first and then texted me. And it was, it, it was odd. It was, um, it was, it was the hard, it was one of the hardest moments I have had as an adult person. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's difficult explaining to people why it was such a big deal for somebody that I had never met. Right, but like, right, right. But I, so I, 
so you know, I, I could do ten podcast episodes on my relationship to David Bowie, but that's um, fantastic. You probably <laughs> actually should have your own podcast about it. It's not a bad idea. I'll produce but like it. Um, my uh, I I can remember being maybe like David's age, my son's age, and having my dad play um, Suffered at City. And being like, do you know who this is? And I said, yeah, it's David Bowie. And he said, do you know what he looks like? And I was like, isn't he the one with the red hair? That's all I can remember when I was a kid is Ziggy Stardust, like what he looked like. You know, yeah. that, was, that was 1975. That's, like, a, I, that's a huge impression that he's left on you. Immediately. Yeah. And so yeah. since like he's been in my head for, you know, had been when he died for 40 some years, you know, like everywhere I went, every, uh, every, place i moved the first cd i play is bowie every like um you know every new car i buy i test the stereo with Bowie. you know what I mean? it's like it's just that's how it is i have i wear um black star vans every day on my feet it's like you know what i mean like uh, short of him being a a like relative of mine that is the hardest and i and i was so surprised because you know, nobody knew, and that's just no one knew. No one. That's knew. perfectly him, right? Like, it's the very best Bowie way to die is to is to not tell anybody and then just die, right? Yeah, right. To put out an album two days beforehand, like you're still just fine, and then just die. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, in retrospect, it's kind of awesome that that was how it happened. But like in the moment, like I, it was literally like I had been struck by lightning, and I was on the couch in my apartment in LA and it was so unexpected that I couldn't believe it because you know I work on the internet there's you know it's just I thought it, it had he had been hacked or something like some like it just which it happens right it's like you yeah, know yeah it didn't seem like a thing that could be real um and then it was and it was just like and yeah you're right like it was very sweet that people were concerned about me in that moment and for a second I was embarrassed about it, but then I was like, my friends really love me. Like I had um, an ex who I had not spoken to in 20 years that sent me a Facebook message that was just like, I'm just thinking about you. I hope you're okay. You know? Um, and it, it ended badly. We hadn't speak, spoken in oh, forever, you know? Um, it ended like disastrously badly. Um, and so that to me is like, wow, people really care about me, you know? And um and so that was, so it's become a thing, but I still can't listen as much as I used to because it just, I just, it just makes me sad. Like it's it doesn't painful. make me cry sad, but it makes me sad, sad. Um, and then Prince in the same year. I mean, that was like. It's insane. It was almost yeah. hard to believe, right? Like, yeah. uh, I think the first celebrity death that impacted me was Phil Hartman. Yeah. And then I think Chris Farley was shortly thereafter or, you know, SNL was just big in my house, yeah. you know, where someone like Paul Vanasik was completely right, you know, teethed on SNL. We watched it, but like I cared about Phil Hartman. And then when I learned that he died, I remember crying in the grocery store or something yeah. like, um, but then you're so right that the, it was like surreal to think that like a giant at like David Bowie could die. And I think that that's probably what people experienced with Michael Jackson and people also experienced with Prince having had that experience. It, yeah. Uh, 
Like how the how could this have? Oh, Whitney Houston is the same. How could these people die? How? Yeah, it's it's just one of those things where, like, you have your favorites throughout the course of your life, and every once in a while, the wheel of misfortune turns to one of your favorite things, and you're just like, oh, that thing will never be. There'll never be any more of that. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I'll, I'll never get another helping of David Bowie. I'll never get a chance to go see him play live again. I've seen him play like twelve times. Live. Oh, you know, it's like that's. I'm so glad that you did get to see him though. That's um, and Prince. Uh, so Prince was an important part of my courting process with my wife. Like, oh, I didn't know. So this. He, he did a like twenty one night stand at the Forum. Oh um, Jesus, where that's he, incredible. So even more incredible is this. He was doing these stands. He did one in Chicago, I think. He did one in Vegas. He did one in LA. Um, he did one somewhere else. And they were these like residencies where they put tickets on sale, but every day they'd have a lottery and you could get tickets for $21, right? Which it's is insane. insane. It's insane. But also you come to find out after he passed away that these were not just residencies that he was doing. He is a Jehovah's Witness and he was going to these places to do ministry, but didn't want people to know because he didn't want them to think he was being like cynical about his religion. So he was like helping to build schools and shit like that in all of these places, un like without anybody knowing. You're kidding and that me. Was, no, that's why he stayed there for such a long period of time. He was doing that stuff. That's... But I didn't know any of that at the time. I don't think public that i don't even think that's public knowledge all, you like, can find it it's it's around but um wow so so i got lottery tickets for us to go see prince on friday the 13th while we were there and like it was amazing like amazing like um stevie wonder came on stage and played <gasps> superstition um janelle monet opened like sheila e was in the band he did like um, i sound like your friend who was like he only didn't play these two songs but he played he did like a two and a half hour set and then like came back and did like five encores. And at the oh end, it was so long God. that the band left and most of the audience left <laughs> and it was just him and a piano. And he did, it was like insane. It was like it, all those things. That's that magical. That. Yeah. It was ridiculous. Um, and it was like, I, I, the whole time you were like, Oh my God, that's Prince. You know what I mean? Like I, I see, have seen a lot of concerts in my life. Like, thousands and only a couple of times in my life have i ever been like i'm in the room with that person like yes that is actually prince on stage right there that's prince you know um and so that was just amazing i i shared that feeling and similarly it's it's kind of weird to have an attack you know the, there's a word that's being bandied around in a good way that's like uh, parasocial where people have a relationship. It's it's existed since the radio where people feel like they have a relationship with a character or a celebrity because they're in their home and they're watching their mm -hmm. TV show. You can even be a fictional character, whatever, but they, that other person doesn't know they exist. Right. So yeah. it, it feels odd to go. I love John Lennon. I, I, you know, all the other issues aside, I would upend my life to meet that person but I, that person doesn't know i exist and so it's almost insane to admit that it or like going to a date i had this very similar experience at radiohead when i uh, to watching radiohead at coachella were you about to say dave matthews i don't mind talking about how much i love dave matthews and i, I went to dave matthews two nights ago are you kidding 
No, I went to the I went to the Moody Center. It was the, for the opening of the summer tour. It was two was Wednesday the eleventh. I went and saw the, it. Was that was my birthday. Great. It was so good. He's the fucking best. They did Shotgun for the first time in like fifteen years. It was all amazing insane yeah it was really 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 good um, i loved it i've seen him five times and that's yeah. a lot for jessica who didn't go to concerts like and it was the first concert i ever went to and one i was so high for i don't even remember that i was in the nosebleeds and right just i just fucking adore that man but i guess that's even more to my point like it's, it seems really weird to have an emotional singular experience while you're around a million other people who don't mean anything to that person. And they're just yeah. going to go do this show again in another city that doesn't matter to them. But and, and it's me assuming a lot and like dealing with my own ins insignificance issues. But at the same time, that was these were impactful moments. Yeah. I'm even more so or even differently is um yeah, Dave Matthews is a good example of this too, is that some people are not having singular experiences. Like some people mark their lifetime by the people that they go to these shows with and the culture that's True. there and the community that they have there. Like like going to the dead or fish or whatever. Like I go, I'm a fish fan, so um, which is probably the thing that will cause you not to like me. Not but, so like, true. I saw Trey Anastasio and uh, Dave Matthews. It's like when it was Dave Matthews and Friends. I understand yeah. it. I get it. It's not my steez, which people right. make fun of me for saying steez, but it I totally get it. Who's the other guy he plays with? It's like the um Luther, the Luther. Oh, Tim Reynolds. So I saw Tim Reynolds. He's in the band now. Oh, He's is like he? A full member of the band. Yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense because also Dave Matthews has arthritis, so it might actually be helpful for him to have another guitarist, so he doesn't have to do too much work. I didn't know that. Yes. But Tim Reynolds was playing the guitar with his teeth. And, it, and this was, that was the show that I was so high. I smoked weed out of a Coke, bent Coke can, went to the Staples Center, went up the 17 flights of escalators, was in the nosebleed, tripping my balls off. Watching. Nice. It was a fucking amazing. It was really so great. That that reminds me of like two stories, one of which circles all the way back to this beginning of this conversation, which was... Paul Hungerford oh and I God. went yes. to go see Kiss when they reunited for the first time in like 25 years at the Forum. Oh my God. Um, in like 95, 96. And Paul pre-gamed real, real hard. Paul knows how to party, for sure. With some Jack Daniels and ended up uh, passed out before the show even started in his seat and missed most of the show no how how can you sleep through that show it was kiss it was like the loudest show ever and he was just like out <sighs> yeah that's actually um, dedication the other one is that's that amazing. i actually smoked for the first time the other night in like a year and a half so for the dave matthews show yes and and um and i i was having what i went with my friend jeremy um and you know you smoke pot jeremy <laughs> yeah, everybody knows that. Well. You're busted. <laughs> and, um, and weirdly, um, our friend Craig, who was our third roommate in Austin before I moved to LA in like back in like 99, 2000, was also there by himself. And so he came and sat with us. And it ended up being the three of us having an experience together for the first time in like years that wow. was just the three of us, you know? Wow. Um, doing something we would have done in 2000, which was get high and listen to Dave Matthews. And like, it was a perfect 
experience. So like, I, I find that you go to all these things and you, and you go to these shows and stuff and most of them are like good or great, but every once in a while, something super magical happens and you, that's the reason you keep going. You know what I mean? Like you're at the show when this thing happens or you're, you know, it's a story forever, you know? And that was Wednesday night was like a perfect experience. That's, I think that 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 does answer the question of how can we feel so connected to something that is so far removed from us, but also intrinsic to us as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, it's, if you're saying it, it's like Proustian, right? Like it's like uh, what I missed that Proustian. Like so, Proust oh. wrote wrote like seven volumes of a story based on a single smell that he had. That Are brought you him back. Yeah, yeah, it's ridiculous. Um, and it, and like it brought him back to his childhood and evoked all these memories and all these feelings and all that kind of stuff. And like, especially the older you get, the more wistful you become over things that happened when you were younger, both good and bad, right? Like, right. you know, talking about the things that you'd wish that you said to yourself or whatever, that is a daily occurrence to me, especially as I have a kid, you know, like it's, I, I you have a desire to, to treat yourself nicer than you had because it's, it's a bumpy ride through your twenties and thirties. It's just like you can keep slamming into shit and it's hard. Um, and then you get to the other side and you're like, if I had just been a little nicer to myself, I might be a little bit more okay than I am right now. Mm. And so the things that happen during that time, you are either like, oh, I'm really sad that I spent, like I wasted so much time on this relationship that was unfruitful or I, you know, I thought so poorly of myself when I really was a pretty okay human being. And like y y all of that kind of stuff just deepens the older you get because your clock is running out. So you start to like, you know what I mean? Like you start to feel those things. And so when you get to reconnect or close, like your little divergence that you talked about where you had to kind of close the loop on it. Yes. Yes. That's really yes. important. You know, like that's an accomplishment. Mm. You did that. You closed the loop. It's done. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah, totally. I don't know that I could have otherwise. I think it was like one of those things where like there was stop sign, stop sign, stop sign. And I was like, well, I need a new therapist and I'm going to blow past the stop signs. Right. And, and I knew better, but it did need to happen. And I think also for that person as well that I did the divergence with, like it was also fruitful for that person. Um, not the best experience, not the worst version of our experience either, but just shitty and then moving. I actually am now dating somebody because I think I closed the loop. I had, That's great. Yeah. Like, or at least open, finally was open to those things. Um, but yeah, like, I think the thing that confuses me about those experiences is the, my emotions tend to dictate the importance of a situation. So like, even though I know that I can be um, swayed by my emotions, I tend to go, well, if I feel this way, that means it must be this thing. So, but I'm learning now that like two things can be true. I can be sad about how that ended and happy that something else is happening too. Yeah. It, I don't know that I, I remember when I was doing impro stuff and I was, uh, so I was 25, 26 and partying in Echo Park with, my oldest friend and her and I would go to bars to like, quote unquote, pick up dudes. Like we never did. No one would ever hit on us. No one ever bought us a fucking drink. One time she made out with the bartender 
But every time we went out into Echo Park or Silver Lake or whatever to party and maybe get hit on, it was the worst night. And we went home so disappointed because we didn't get the thing that we were seeking outside of ourselves to happen. Right. So after I moved out and then like a couple more things, this was like right before Impro for me, um, I started going, oh, fuck. I'm not enjoying the person that I just went to the bar with. Instead, I'm looking for someone else to make this night special. So I started like looking, I stopped looking at my phone as much. I started being present with the person. I didn't go with a specific thing in mind. I just was focused. So right right when I started going to Impro, I was just at that bar and we were just having a good fucking time. And I didn't care about anything else going around me. And then I would see these 21-year-olds that were going into the bar, trying to look as cute as possible and like looking to see if other girls notice them or other boys. And I, that was like the first time that I, you know, if someone would say, could, if you could go back knowing what you know now, would you? I said, absolutely fucking not. I, you couldn't pay me to be 22. Oh, you know, what's funny. Whenever I see, I say this to, whenever I'm with somebody in the mall and I see forever 21, I'm like, that's a fucking curse. Like <laughs> I would not be forever. I would not be 21 for another moment <laughs> in my life. It was the worst. You're to- right? Okay. So that's fair. I'm glad that you're saying that because that's the worst experience ever. You're totally uh, right. Yeah, I think so. Like, because you're kind of spit out into the universe with no preparation for what things are really like, because college is like a bubble that you live in. That's perfect. Right. Like it's, it's, yeah, it's hard and you have to stay up late or whatever, but like, it's easy. You're, and I didn't go to college. Impro was like my college, which okay. actually makes a lot of sense for how I walked through that place too. Yeah. So for me, like I, you know, I graduated high school. I moved to Boston. It was like this idyllic, like it was like a, watching a movie about somebody being in college, you know, like, like it was, it, it was hard. I had interpersonal issues, but like, you know, you get your first long-term girlfriend and you, you know, and then it's fall and the boats are there and like, you know, then it's winter and that, you know, you're watching this montage and then suddenly you're 21 years old and you're in Los Angeles and you're like, okay, I'm staking my claim in the entertainment business. What do I do? Mm, right. Mm. And in your head, you're like, well, I clearly I'm going to have to be a millionaire by the time I'm 25 or else this is a complete failure. Yeah, totally. So, you know, so and you don't have the uh, the moxie or the like um, mechanism to be able to walk into a party with people and schmooze. That was the big deal when I first got there. I was like, you got to schmooze, you know, you got to schmooze. And I'm like, I just, I don't, I'm not good. Like, what am I, I'm going to give them this here. Hi, I'm what it, here, hire me as a, you know, um, and it's just like, I, I, it, it's, it's so hard because your peers are doing all that too. And everybody's, you're all fighting with each other, but like, you're trying to stay together and you're trying to maintain friendships from when your childhood right. has ended and, and like, you're an, an adult for the first time. So like, you know, sex has probably been around a little bit, but like the politics of sex on a daily basis and like maintaining that and how that all works is ridiculous and then i have to pay bills and sometimes your car breaks down like it's just hard you know it's just like you don't have any of the resilience to be able to deal with any of that stuff it's fucking impossible you know like my wife tells a story about um having to choose between uh, electric and food wow. one month 
in her house because that was the that was it. She that was could, what the circumstance she was. Could afford time. one or the other, right? Wow. Um, it, it's just I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't trade that, you know, um, because some people are like, oh, it was so much freer then or whatever. But like bullshit, man, that's fucking. To what end? I got a yeah. fucking car towed like that, that like I was driving my dad's car and then it, you're totally right. Like the breakdowns of cars, like alone, like I am a, the sum total of who I am up to this point. And I almost look at like the past Jessica's as completely different people. Yeah. There's some memories that like are intrinsic to who I am today and never when well, like the seven-year-old Jessica is still here or like 17 year old Jessica is still here. like those cool moments or even hard moments. But there's like a couple boyfriends and there's a couple hard situations where it's like, I don't even recognize the person that walked through that situation. Yeah. I mean, I was a nasty. Uh, I find that so hard to believe. Mike. Oh, I was so uh, seriously. Like I was miserable. I was so unhappy with myself and jealous of my friends and I couldn't, I couldn't find anyone to love me and I couldn't, you know, like it was just, um, and I just felt, uh, worthless and, you know, and I let that, and I, and I'm now that I'm older, it's easier to not be angry, but like I was angry all the time and I was punk rock and like, it was just a lot of like, I was, I was unpleasant to be around a lot because anytime somebody had something to celebrate, I'd be like, fuck you. You know what I mean? Like, and, and I was, that was just such not a good way well, to be. Well, it doesn't know? help you on your journey. So I also went through that and you met me on the other side of that where I was, because I was from LA, I didn't feel like I, well, I was petrified to enter the business. I was very young, even when I was 25 and I was scared. And so I was like, oh, maybe I'll do music. And then just as I started to get like people coming to my open mic and shows regularly I fucking said nope I'm not doing it anymore I like just was nervous about some things and yeah I I can't change that but like I saw self-sabotage happen even with like dating boys or smoking pot for five years straight and remember like forgetting what year it was but and I could have been much worse but everything I did was putting off the inevitable which was being in this career but until I started pursuing the career I was so bitter at other people's successes. So to the point where I was like bitter at Scarlett Johansson and Zoe Deschanel, I was like, I should be in those fuck, I should be those bitches who they're not that good. I have my SAG card because I sound like Scarlett Johansson. So if I was a bitter ass bitch going into this career, that doesn't happen. If I can't be happy for other people or at least not look at it as like a slight to my career, I don't know that I could have maintain some sort of mental health through all this either but i think yeah. it is something we all go through and you're right it's it's hard to understand and even though we've been through it and understand it our emo our our sense of self directly affects how we are with other people and interact in the world yeah yeah but it's hard it to accept made, that it made that first so i i, I had two experiences in la right i did it uh, I did six years and then I left for eight and then came back for 12. Um, it made the first experience in LA kind of miserable. Mm -hmm. And I was so internally focused that I didn't see the city. 
Like uh, it was a, it was like monolithic to me, right? So it was when I was young, everything that people said it was because I didn't allow myself to see anything else. So it was very hard to appreciate the beauty of it. And it is stunning. Like it is, it's a, for a lot of reasons, it's a perfect place to be in a lot of reasons it's not, but totally, like, you know, um, but I missed all that the first time around because I was so disappointed in my experience because I was fueling that disappointment, right? Or you like, had an idea of what you should be accomplishing and then you're not right. where you think you should be. So you don't see the forest for the trees. I totally relate to that. Yeah. And it was just no fun, you know? Um, and I couldn't wait to get out and I went and I did something else. And, um, and it was just like, I realized that the whole world doesn't hinge on what, how much money movies made over the weekend and that other people do other things other than the entertainment business and are completely happy and live their whole life without knowing any of this stuff and are just fine. You know, I find that, that hard that, to believe, but I know it's, I, but it's, yeah, and it's, and it's a, it's a path that I could take if I had to. Right. You right. know? Um, and I didn't want to, I, ch I chose to come back and do that. And the second time around, it was awesome. Like super, super, super great. Um, and then it was time to go, you right, know, it was, right. um, were you burnt? So, so you did leave, you had a, you had a baby, you mm -hmm. have roots in, in the town that you're in now. Mm -hmm. Um, but did you leave burnt out or did you leave before that happened? Or had you just seen the end of the road coming up and you're like, I'm ready to move on. There were lots of contributing factors, most of which was um, were related to the fact that I was in my mid-40s. And um, there is a point at which you kind of have to say, okay, this thing is not for me, right? Like I'm probably not at this point going to make a living out of improv, um, right? In the way that some of the other folks at, at Impro have done, you know? And, and, and some of them are... Some of them have accepted a lifestyle that works for them and that's how it goes. And they're very, very happy with that. Right. Um, I was, we were in a 900 square foot apartment in Mar Vista with a kid. I didn't realize you were that far. Yeah. Um, oh, maybe and, I knew that when you came into the bed. I forgot. Wow. Yeah. Um, with it, with a baby um, in a, in a tiny spot. And uh, I wanted space and I wanted the, I wanted some tangible um possessions is not the right word but um some tangible proof of the amount of work that i had been doing the amount of, i was making a really good amount of money in los angeles and still living paycheck to paycheck you know what i mean like i was by any amount of by any stretch of the imagination i was making upper middle class money in la but not and, livable in LA and not livable. Yeah. And, and so it was one of those situations where clearly I was either going to have to level up in that respect and not spend so much time with my son and with my wife and doing the things that I enjoyed doing, or I was going to have to go somewhere else. And we, I, I love Austin. Austin's a great place. And um, I have a lot of friends here and I had been part of the comedy scene here for a really long time. And I was, invited back to it and and all that kind of stuff and so um it was pretty much like uh this is it's time for us to to move on and and do something else so 
I remember um, it being very sad for me, but also of all people too, Paul Hungerford. I, I kind of hated him for this, but he's like, you know, this is going to be an eventuality, Jessica, where you're like, you know what? Screw this career. I'm just going to get pregnant and, and move on. Like he would say that people fall off of the career and the longer you're in it, the more of your friends you'll see choose other paths. Yeah. And I didn't love that he, I think he was probably trying to, I think is my, now now that I'm looking at it actually and saying it out loud, I wonder if he was protecting himself by going, maybe Jessica's going to go too or whatever. So like, like a self-fulfilling yeah, or, or maybe, or maybe he was. You know what I mean? Like there's a part of it that is like self-reflection that like at some point I might not be able to do this anymore. Right. Right. You know? Um, I never looked at someone else moving as a reflection of like what choice I should make, but it, it does hurt when my friends aren't here. It did. It was sad when you're like, this person I really like is leaving, you know, uh, I don't have anywhere else to go. Because my family's here. Do you <laughs> yeah. know what I mean? And yeah. I and I don't, I really have always had a lot of respect for people like yourself who are like, I'm going to go to LA. The thing I want to do is there. Um, but I, I guess I could do my career in, in New York. I don't fucking want to, but my family's here, you know? Right. Um, and I fucking love it here. I guess all of the things I've been through, good and bad, I really was set up for success emotionally. I I don't even know if that's true. I'm very, I have a lot of wonderful things in my life that made this life really worth living. And some of it was circumstance, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, look, I did too, you know? Yeah. But um, my parents were super supportive. I never once had a time. I, you know, I went to college pre-law and no I came out. way. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually um, doesn't surprise me in a way. Cause I think there is, there's a, Venn diagram where yeah. lawyers and actors really do overlap for sure. Yep. Wow. And uh, and I thought I was going to do that. And then I was like, I want to be a comedy writer. And my parents were like, okay, if that's what you want to do. Then do that, you know? I love um, that. And so that was really cool of them because a lot of parents would be like, yeah, but you were going to be a lawyer. And now <laughs> you're, you're not. Um, so, but they were, you know, they were also a little starstruck by the idea too, which is cool. Like they got to, they got to kind of be on, I got to do great stuff. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I wouldn't trade my experience, especially the second time around. I wouldn't trade that experience for anything. Like I, um, I had cool jobs. I did, you know, I worked with amazing people. Like, you know, I worked for Jim Cameron for a year and that was really Oh, awesome. I didn't know that. You That's know what cool. I mean? Yeah. It was super fun, you know? Um, and so I got to experience LA in, I got to experience Hollywood specifically, right? Yes, yes, um, yes. And I got to experience LA because, you know, the second time around, I had a pr pretty steady job. I was in the same gig for like 11 years. And um, and I could go and, and spend time in the city and find the things that I really liked and go to the places that I enjoyed and, and let go and not. So the part that you were talking about where you kind of have to go, like you said, the the... Um, going to Silver Lake and Echo Park and all that kind of stuff. Like I immediately think of the Lucky Bar for some reason. Like that's Funny. the place that I think like, oh, that's where if I were 21 years old and a woman and I wanted to go hit on, a, have a guy hit on me, that's exactly where I would go, right? Um, or like the Tiki Bar that's down the street there, the, uh, you know, Tiki Tea. Oh, I know um, exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, all that, right? Um, 
it's fun to go to those places. That's so funny because the bar that I literally had that realization was next door to the Tiki Tea. Or like, or like oh, yeah? close to it. I was like, oh, fuck these people. I don't want to be near this energy at all. And then like yeah. walked over to the Tiki Tea because it was a whole fucking different thing. Yeah, like, yeah. Um, but I also like not having that pressure anymore to be who you're not. Because I am who I am now. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm done. I've cooked, you know? So like... Um, and not and you taste great thank you yeah um not worrying about what people think anymore which i i do occasionally but it's much less than it than it used to be like i just am what i am you know i've got my i've got my clan i've got my friends i've got my family i've got my job all that kind of stuff is i i am who i am so you exist earnestly exactly and so i get to enjoy the things that i uh earned you know what i mean like last night um, uh, my wife is a belly dancer. And so we went, she did a show and I went and saw her show. And afterwards, um, we were like, we were childless for the evening. So, um, there was this really cool shabu shabu restaurant that opened here. That's like that for a while, it took like weeks to get a reservation. And I was like, Oh, we should go there. And she's like, yeah, why don't we go there? We went there, we walked right in and got it. And it was like a, a dinner that I would have had to have saved like weeks for when I was younger and it was just like, I'm going to do this because I can. And in the middle of it, I was like, my God, isn't it great to like, this sounds really shitty to people who are listening to this. They're like, I can't do that. But like, isn't it cool that I can finally do some of the things that I enjoy doing and I don't have to worry about like, Oh my God, am I going to, what happens if my brakes fail tomorrow or right. like, you know what I mean? Um, but I think that is something that we all navigate I have made great money and then then it went away and I'm on like the curve of making great money again and I'm hoping to handle it even better this time around. But even when money is like in question, one of the things I go to and like is gratitude and, you know, I have a net and then there's like other things like the actors fund that keep like help certain, like, you know, using the resources that you have. Um, but I also have found not having money in your bank account can be debilitating, all those things. But sometimes that fucking five course meal is also going to help your mental situation too. Even if you can't afford breaks tomorrow, you might need to have that dessert or go to see that concert just to reset your brain too. Yeah. So even if someone that's listening to this has to make the choice like your wife between electricity and food get the food. someday you'll have both yeah you will have it again yeah and yeah. And, the, and the irs is not going to come you know i always thought the irs was gonna <laughs> fucking sh- shovel me to the prison for not paying for yeah. three years you know uh and then when you like have lived enough you're like ah i will just survive this and yeah handle i'll it pay when them I when i can exactly <laughs> yeah yeah um, I don't know when this became uh, a discussion about finances and things like that, but um, it, you know. It, but it does. It is a huge aspect of life, and we're kind of memori- like we're memorializing Nick and his crypto corner. So it's yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I did a. I invested very very small amount in crypto, which is now like literally draining out the the sink, and like it's kind of funny to me. But uh, the crypto bro culture is a real thing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and it's, uh, it's, it's weird. It's there that this is a discussion that is probably much longer than we have, but 
these little pockets of people, crypto bros, um, incels, yes, Bernie bros, mm-hmm. they are the same people in different costumes. Wow. You know what I mean? Sure. So they're sad and frustrated and they don't know what to do with themselves and they're and I'm not talking about everybody that invests in cryptocurrency. I'm talking everyone about everyone like, that voted for Bernie is not the same. It totally exactly. Yeah. But I'm talking about the toxic aspects of these things, right? right? Um are just people who are uh who are frustrated and they want what they can't have, right? And you know, I mean I was in on the GameStop thing for a little while because I wanted to get rich quick. Like I thought it'd be cool. You know, um, wish fulfillment is like a friend, a friend of mine and I have been writing for a few years and we're like, you know, what script sell wish fulfillment. People just want to be like, let's, you know, what, what if our movie was about somebody who just inherited a billion dollars? Cause people love that shit because yes. that's all they want, you know? Um, and they think that that's the key to happiness. And even though you say like, Oh, money's not the key to happiness. Like, money buys you all of the freedom that is what really is happiness. So it has nothing to do with like money itself doesn't buy you the happiness, but like the space to be able to exist and do what you want without pressure comes from having that wealth. Right. It sure does. Um, and so I think all of those people in different ways are, are, and, and it's, and you know, in crypto, it's like, I can get rich tomorrow. And if you're a burning person, it's like, fuck it, burn it down. I don't care if, you know, um, if you're an incel, it's like, I should have that woman that I want, you know, and it's like, you don't get all the things that you want. You get some of the things that you want <laughs> as the Rolling Stones so aptly said, um, oh. which by the way, I don't get the Rolling Stones. Thank you. There you go. Thank you. Thank you. That makes me feel so much better, Mike. I think there's about a three disc collection of Rolling Stones greatest hits that I would enjoy listening to. And the rest of it is just like, hmm, not really that big. A I fan. think Backstreet Girl and that's it or something like it's that's it it's it's i don't want to contribute to the culture that's like oh the rolling stones are better than the beatles the beatles are better than rolling stones they can also exist as two separate entities but as far as being amazing i think we're overhyping them and why isn't queen in that conversation and talked about as being better than the rolling stones i don't know because they are and why isn't the who in that conversation because they are also better than the Rolling Stones. They are. I mean, even fucking Led Zeppelin's better than the Rolling Stones. I agree. And they only put out, what, six albums? I mean, Robert now is like total, you know, an emo boy, which is really great. Like, I kind of love that, like that he evolved into this, like, I'm going to sing some folksy stuff, you know, whatever. But like, the Rolling Stones are the Rolling Stones and it's an experience. And I'm happy if you like it. You can't say it's better than the Beatles. You can't. No. You'd be wrong. The Beatles, exi- so I watched that uh, that eight hour. Peter I haven't Jackson watched movie. it yet for a very specific reason. I'm not ready to listen to the Beatles and only the Beatles again. Like I go through feel like, like eras where I'm like, this is the Beatle era. I'm just listening to every album. I just not, I'm not emotionally ready for it yet. Right. Well, you have to be ready to listen to don't let me down and only don't let me down for several hours. You know what? I can (laughs) right now. That's once, not even the let it be naked version. The original version is the best one. That's my opinion. That's my opinion. So, um, but it was, and I had, I had COVID in November. 
Got it. So I was quarantining in my bedroom and I was oh. like, what can I watch that would occupy a lot of time? Yes. And uh, I watched it all and it's, um, it humanized them for the first time ever for me. Cause this is like walking, talking Beatles, people like them actually being themselves and not just like what they say in front of people that they know are, are listening. You know what I mean? Like they knew people were listening, but it, after a while the camera sort of disappeared and they were just doing stuff. Um, there is, uh, there is like a 20 second piece in it where Paul McCartney just, uh, absentmindedly writes, get back in like, with no time, they just like start strumming and he's like, does it. And you're like, Oh my God, that was it. That was the lightning. You got to see that. It is worth it for that. And also to see that they really liked each other and that they were at that point, uh, at the end of that version of their relationship like there was no there was nothing that they could do that would repair that then because they were also 27 year old kids that had grown up together and were at the end of that experience you know no matter how hard they tried and no matter how hard they wanted it to be and other people needed it they were just like we i can't you know can't do this anymore i don't know why i mentioned that but it was it's uh the beatles exist on a as like a the Rolling Stones a, don't have that though. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like they don't have that kind of magic in the same way. They just right. don't. But the Beatles exist as like a totem. They're not even really a band. You know what I mean? Like they're they're not even. They shouldn't be. There should be no better. They don't classify in the same way as everybody else. They're just. They my are friend, what they are. My friend Riley Silverman was reading a book, and it, at first I didn't quite understand it, but she. I got it after I asked her for clarification. She said in the future, in this book that she was reading, in the future, the Beatles will exist as an entry of this era and rock and roll will be a footnote to that. Right. You will have yeah. the Beatles um, era of rock and roll. Like it just wouldn't, it's just they're, they're the whole thing that you you can't quantify. It's Beethoven, right? It's Jane Austen. They move, those guys it's move. Prince. I don't think you're right. No. <laughs> Full circle, Mike. I, you know what? I want to be wrong. I want to be wrong. That's the title. It's okay. I mean, you know, I like Mbop like a lot. I tell the story every day of my life. I was in love with Zach Hansen. I was 11. He was 11. I loved Mbop. It was like my first teen beat, tiger beat bullshit thing that I went through. They filmed the Mbop video in Chatsworth at my grocery store. They were rollerblading by it. They went to the foothills in Chatsworth. And I'm so sad that I didn't know that was happening. But they did. They were in Chatsworth. They were in my hometown. And I, an 11-year-old prepubescent yeah. young lady was having a hard time. That song kicks ass. It's a good song. It was a great song, right? And Taylor like, Hansen's killing it still. Like he's just a, fucking a friend, out there rocking. A friend of a friend just produced their new album. They have a new album coming out as Hansen. And a friend of a friend of mine produced it. That's actually pretty cool. I'm going to have to listen to it. Who knows if it's good or anything? Like, you know, I don't know if I'm going to love the music. Yeah. But, but I fuck, that was, that was an era. I, you don't, this is something we talk about, especially in the culture of exactly like you're talking about incels. Bernie Bros, etc. The culture like of gatekeeping, which I oh god, I have to have you back so we can talk about your G four experience with regards to that. I would love yes. to be a fly on the wall for that because I 
because it's actually still happening in the new G4. It um, is. I, 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 that's hard for me to talk about because I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to wade into that particular pool. I don't want to um, disparage anybody either. It's, it's a tough conversation to have. It is a tough conversation to have. And I'm glad that they had part of it. I wish that they had had it at the inception of the new G4 and in a different way. Um, but it was a worthwhile conversation to have. But it also But it's uh, not being backed up with action. No, nor does it acknowledge their problematic past, which they should have done as part of that conversation. Uh, with every iteration of a gaming culture that I've been involved in, when you have a toxic fan base, if it's not being handled by the top with the people with the privilege, it doesn't stop because they're afraid to like lose the views. Anyway, we should talk about this another time. But my point in mentioning that is the gatekeeping aspect of things. You saying that you like Mbop tells me that at some point you might have gotten made fun of for saying that you liked Mbop. Oh, I for was sure. made fun of for saying I like Dave Matthews. And then I, in turn, I learned, oh, it's what you do. You culture is, the culture is to make fun of somebody and gatekeep them from the music you like. Like that was the whole hipster culture for a long time. Right. I know it's, it's a joke. I knew them before they were cool, but people fucking said that. And then I said that because it was said to me, we've, I think you've come to a better place. I, or I don't, I'm, I'm assuming I've come to a better place where I'm like, oh, you don't know them. Just come on. Go listen. Let's go listen to them. I don't give a shit that you haven't listened to it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've gotten to the point where I like what I like and I don't like what I don't like. And I don't care what people have to say about that. It just is what it is. And I, sometimes I know why people like things and I just don't like the white stripes. I don't like the white stripes. Wow. I, I know why people like them. I, I acknowledge that they're a decent band. It's just not my thing. Right. Got it. Um, and I, I was the right era for them. Yeah. I have never liked Nirvana. I don't know why people like Nirvana. Wow. That is a, that's a big one. I don't like Nirvana. I think I'd like um, the popular Nirvana. Do you know what I, I mean? Think they're a, I think they're not as good as the Pixies who they desperately wanted to be. Um, Fair. And that is, but like it is, it just like, I like things that I like and I don't like what I don't like. And it's, you know. But you're not keeping anyone from liking those things too. No. And people who do are assholes. Correct. Right? Like I loved Last Jedi. Anybody who, who like Last Jedi to me is, is, is like right behind Empire Strikes Back. Right? Yeah. It's a fucking great movie. But also, fuck you for not letting people enjoy what aspects of Star Wars they wanted to enjoy, even if it's Jar Jar Binks. Fuck you. Yeah. Right? Like, yes. that is what it is. You you don't get to, to determine what's good and what's not for other people. You know? I... Think, Even though I just did that with Nirvana. So. Well, no, but you were sharing your opinion as yes. opposed to disparaging those that feel that way. Yeah. Uh, I don't have people in my life that are exclusive in that way, that, you know, keep people out from that conversation. You know, even the Star Trek fans that I have, they're not people, even if someone does not like Discovery and the new stuff, they're not saying that they're, that Discovery is bad or people that like them aren't real fans. Yeah. I haven't seen Discovery yet. I'm, I'm dying to. And when um, you do, I'd be curious to know what you think about it. I didn't watch it. I, I will eventually though. Like yeah. I fucking love Lower Decks. I, good for you that you like something, but I think us as a culture, like we're slowly getting there, but like people like yourself and me exemplify what it's like to grow in that. And also, yes, like what you like. I'm trying. I'm trying you're, to grow everything. Killing it. Mike, <laughs> if you had one takeaway or like one sentence that you could whisper in the ears of the listeners, 
that you want them to take away from today and our topic and a conversation, what would you want it to be? Um, take a deep breath. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Yeah. I hey, think that's it. We're going to have you come back. I can't wait for that. I'll be happy to do it anytime. Oh, this was the best. Yay. Bye, Mike. Bye. That does it for this week, Nichols. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of You Don't Know Nick. There are many different ways you can support our podcast. One of them is going to youdon'tknownick.com and finding out all the different places you can listen to our show. You can also follow us on Good Pods, which is basically Instagram for podcasts. Not only can you follow your favorite shows, you can listen to them right there in the app. If you're interested in finding some You Don't Know Nick merch or Jessica Lynn Verde merch, go to subtlegeek.spreadshirt.com. And if you're not already, consider becoming a Patreon member. You can get exclusive swag and early access releases to episodes if we're able to get them to you in a timely manner. Go to patreon.com slash you don't know Nick. And if you haven't already, leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. See you next week, Nichols.